a really cool young man bought one of the fastest cars around, a Ferrari GTO. On one particular occasion, he took it out for a spin. And as he was stopped at a a red light, an old man on a moped pulled up next to him. You know what a moped is, right? Okay, make sure. The old man looked over at the sleek, shiny car and asked, What kind of car you got there, sonny? A Ferrari GTO, which cost a half a million dollars, answered the young man. That's a lot of money, said the old man. Why does it cost so much? Because this car can do over 200 miles an hour, proudly boasting the young man. The old driver asked, do you mind if I take a quick look on the inside? No problem, answered the young man. So the old man poked his head in the window and looked around a bit. Then sitting back on his moped, the old man said, that's a pretty nice car. Just then, the traffic light turned green. And the driver decided to show the old man just what his car could do. He floored it. And within 30 seconds, the speedometer read 160 miles an hour. But suddenly, he noticed a small dot in his rearview mirror. And it was getting closer. He slowed down to see what it could be. And swoosh! Something zoomed by him going even faster. What on earth could be faster than my Ferrari? Thought the young man to himself. Then ahead of him, he saw that dot coming back towards him. Swoosh! It went by again, heading in the opposite direction. And crazy enough, it looked like that old man on the moped. Couldn't be, he thought. How could a moped be faster than my Ferrari? Once more, he saw the dot in his rearview mirror. Followed by a bang as the object crashed into the back of his car. The young man jumped out. And there he saw the old man lying in the pavement. He came to him and asked, Is there anything I can do for you? To which the old man whispered, Unhook my suspenders from your side view mirror. (laughs) 
There is actually a moral to this story. I just didn't throw that out there, you know, without, without a purpose. They had a purpose. There's actually a moral to the story, and it is, be careful what you get attached to. It could, it could harm you in the end. That is a, a simple truth that we know has multiple applications, right? But it's also a truth that has some application for the future. Last week, we made our way through the seven bold judgments presented in in Revelation 16. I hope you've been keeping up which described the final judgments upon the earth just before Jesus returns to set up his earthly kingdom. Marshall, that's a thousand years. (laughs) If you recall from last week, when the seventh bull when the last bowl was poured out, we were told by the Apostle John that Babylon was remembered before God in His wrath. Not something you want to be remembered for. And at that time, I mentioned to you that this future Babylon appeared to be both a great city as well as a worldwide system that represents the empire of the Antichrist. Now you may ask, how could it be how could it be both? How could it be a literal city with a physical location, but at the same time be a system? And I would suggest to you, think of Wall Street. Think of Wall Street. When you think of Wall Street, what comes to mind? What comes to mind to me is our nation's financial system. When I, hear, when I hear the word Wall Street, I think of our nation's financial system. But just as true, it also represents a specific location in New York City. Does it not? So during the tribulation period, this Babylon could very well be a city bearing its name as well as a massive global system. That makes sense. Okay. This morning, we are going to take a, a closer look 
at this future Babylon. God knew that the readers of this book would have questions about it. And so, once again, by stepping outside of the chronological sequence, and I know this can get confusing, God takes us backwards a bit and provides to us this broad, wide angle view of this future Babylon that emerges during the tribulation period and is judged at the end. So we are looking at this future Babylon. And more specifically, in chapter 17, we will be focused on its religious feature. Its religious subsystem, if you will. And we're going to answer the question, will there be religion during the tribulation period? Will there be religion during the tribulation period? So if you have your Bible, turn to Revelation chapter 17. Revelation chapter 17, and we will begin with verse 1. I think it's behind me on the wall. Are you there? Of course you are, because you're staring at the wall behind me. I get it. Okay, okay. Here we go. This is Apostle John speaking. Then, one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and spoke with me, saying, Come here. I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth committed acts of immorality. And those who dwell on the earth were made to drink, or made drunk, with the wine of her immorality. In this passage, one of the seven angels tells John to come and to take a closer look at one of the judgments. The judgment of this character identified as the great harlot. Now this character might be called other things depending on your translation. But hopefully you get the picture. A picture that means something. In the Bible, and this is, and this is key to understanding and identifying this great harlot, God's 
faithful. God's faithful were often pictured spiritually as a devoted wife or a bride who honored her husband. Whereas the unfaithful towards God, the unfaithful, typically those involved in idolatry and the worship of false gods who really weren't gods at all, they were often pictured spiritually as prostitutes and those engaged in adultery. And so with that key understanding, we can rightly conclude that this great harlot symbolizes religion gone bad. Religion gone bad. She symbolizes the false church, the apostate church, the religious system of Babylon that rebels against God and rejects His truth during the tribulation period. Are you with me? Okay. Now, as we continue with this vision, John tells us this great harlot sits on many waters, which we are told later is symbolic of peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues. This tells us she has global influence as she entices the inhabitants of the world, even the rulers of the world, to take part in her immorality. That's what is occurring during the tribulation period. As this enticing religious influence will spread far and wide throughout this world. Maybe you are thinking, that sounds really far-fetched, Bob. I think you're being overly dramatic. Well, imagine this for a moment. The rapture of the church occurs before the tribulation period. And all true believers are gone. The church is gone. All that is left are the lost the unrepentant, the deluded, and those who have only played church but are not real, true believers. There will be a huge void created by the raptured church. A huge void created by the raptured church. And understandably, those left behind will have to deal with the devastating and horrible and confusing aftermath. And they will be easy pickings 
easy pickings for a cunning and seductive and immoral religious system identified here as the great harlot. Makes sense. Let's continue with verse 3. And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness. And I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast, full of blasphemous names, having seven heads and ten horns. The woman was clothed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her hand a gold cup full of abominations and of the unclean things of her immorality. And on her forehead a name was written, a mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. So the picture gets interesting. This great harlot has a name. She has a name, and it's Babylon the Great. And she just isn't any harlot. She is the mother of harlots. And that warrants a quick review of some history. As you may know, Babylon is rooted in a place called... Anybody know? Babel. Babylon is rooted in a place called Babel. A Hebrew word which means the gate to God. That's what it means. The gate to God. And it's a place we first read about in Genesis chapter 11. If you remember, after the flood, after the flood, God commanded Noah's family to be fruitful and to multiply and to spread throughout the whole world. Does that ring a bell? Okay. Well, they were fruitful and they did multiply. But they challenged God's authority. And they banded together as one great people. And to symbolize their greatness, in their arrogance, they decided to build a tower in Babel as a monument 
to the power and the self-righteousness of man. They wanted to build a tower that would be their gate to God. Their gate to God. In essence, claiming in so many words, we can make it to heaven on our own. We have what it takes to make it where God is. That's what that represented. Well, if you remember the story, everyone was speaking one language. And God said, well, enough of that. And kapow. Suddenly, they were all speaking different languages. They could no longer work together on the tower. And just as God had desired in the first place, they separated. They spread out into the nations of the earth. But when they separated, they carried their man-centered religion with them. So Babel, Babylon, is the mother of harlots. She is the mother of false religion. And as Paul Harvey might say, remember Paul Harvey, right? As Paul Harvey might say, here's the rest of the story about Babel. The Bible tells us that the ringleader in the building of this tower in Babel was this guy named Nimrod. Ring a bell? Nimrod. Nimrod had a wife named Semiramis. And together they had a son named Tammuz. Are you following me? Okay. Unfortunately, Nimrod died before the birth of Tammuz. But Semiramis lived on, and she became a very important leader, a high priestess, in fact. Legend has it, legend, legend has it, that Tammuz was later killed by a wild boar. So Semiramis took the body of Tammuz, laid it out, and for 40 days she fasted and wept over the body of her son. And after 40 days, Tammuz came back to life. 
This was the legend. Okay? This was the legend. That actually started a pagan religion. And if you think I am making this up, there is a reference found about this in Ezekiel chapter 8, beginning with verse 14. Let me read it. This is Ezekiel speaking. Then he brought me to the entrance of the gate of the Lord's house, which was toward the north. And behold, women were sitting there weeping for Tammuz. He said to me, Do you see this, son of man? Yet you will see still greater abominations than these. In this passage, God gave the prophet Ezekiel a vision about all the wicked religious abominations that were occurring. And one of these religious abominations described a a pagan ceremony occurring outside the temple of God that involved women weeping for Tammuz. So, Samirimus, mom, and Tammuz became figures in this pagan religion. A pagan religion where both mother and son were worshipped. And if you do your own study, study on your own, you will find that there were numerous other religions that were spawned from this idea. And that's another reason why Babylon is called the mother of harlots. Okay. Don't get me started. Yeah. You guys can connect the dots on your own, okay? Okay. Yeah, okay. Back to John's vision in Revelation 17, verse 3. In his vision, and this is very interesting, John sees this woman, this great harlot named Babylon, and she is sitting on a scarlet beast full of blasphemous names, having seven heads and ten horns. What's the significance of that? Well, some say it means that the beast 
was supporting her. It's carrying her. She's sitting on the beast. The beast is supporting her. And that seems true. Others say, think about this, others say that she was in charge. Because the rider is typically in charge of whatever he or she writes. That seems true as well. And maybe both are true. The beast supports the great har- the great harlot. The beast supports this false religion. And at first, at first, it may appear that the beast is actually controlled by her. Now, we have seen this beast before with the seven heads and the ten horns back in chapter 13. And we already know that this beast is the Antichrist. This beast is the Antichrist. And in regards to the seven heads and the ten horns, we will look at that in a moment, okay? But for now, this picture of the great harlot sitting on the back of the scarlet beast represents the unholy alliance between this false religion during the tribulation period and the wicked government of the Antichrist. There's an alliance, okay? That's what we're seeing here. We are told this great harlot was dressed in dazzling attire, adorned in the finest of jewelry, and holding a shiny gold cup. In other words, she looks great on the outside. Gorgeous, in fact. She has incredible wealth. Incredible wealth. But on the inside, she is filled with all kinds of nasty, filthy stuff. False religion can make itself look very appealing and enticing and inviting. But we know appearances can be deceiving. And I will show you what I mean in verse 6. Verse 6. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints 
and with the blood of the witnesses of Jesus. When I saw her, I wondered greatly. This false religious system will have its converts who will be responsible for the zealous persecution and slaughter of countless numbers of people who come to Christ during the tribulation period. And if you think that is unreasonable and unbelievable, just go back in history. Just go back in history and you will discover that some of the most vicious and violent persecution against Christians was done in the name of religion. History tells us that. Well, John was astonished to see this vision. And as a result, the angel provided an explanation to him, beginning with verse 7. Let me read this. This is a lot of stuff. And the angel said to me, Why do you wonder? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast that carries her, which has the seven heads and the ten horns. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to come out of the abyss and go to destruction. And those who dwell on the earth, whose name has not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world, will wonder when they see the beast that he was and is not and will come. Here is the mind which has wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits. And they are seven kings. Seven kings. Five have fallen. One is... The other has not yet come. And when he comes, he must remain a little while. The beast which was and is not is himself also an eighth. And is one of the seven. And he goes to destruction. The ten horns which you saw are ten kings who have not yet received a kingdom. But they receive authority as kings with the beast for one hour. These have one purpose. And they give their power and authority to the beast. These will wage war against the Lamb. And the Lamb will overcome them. 
because He is the Lord of lords and the King of kings. And those who are with Him are called, are the called and chosen and faithful. (sighs) Just soak it all in. We looked at this passage some time ago as we worked our way through chapter 13 to study the, if you recall, the family tree. That's what I called it, the family tree of the Antichrist. But since we are here again, I think it's worth a, a short recap. Okay? So let me try to summarize this for you without confusing you. And we are going to begin with the seven heads. Okay? The seven heads. If you notice in verse 10, we are told the seven heads are symbolic of seven kings. Described like mountains. Seven kings described like mountains. And when taken together, I believe they are better understood to represent seven world empires. Seven world empires. And these empires are actually given to us in sequential order. And it goes like this. Five have fallen. One is. And the other has not yet come. That's the sequential order. At the time of John's writing, okay, at the time of John's writing, there were five great world empires that had previously fallen. Okay? Five. They were Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Medo-Persia, and Greece. Greek. Okay? These were great mountainous empires. All Gentile empires that ruled the known world. They ruled the known world. But at the time of John's writing, they had all come and gone. Then there is the one that is. That would be the one in existence at the time of John's writing. And that would have been the Roman Empire. These are the great world empires that ruled the known world in the past. But then we are told there is one that has not yet come. A future empire. 
a seventh world empire. And it's out of this seventh world empire that the Antichrist emerges. A man possessed at some point in his life with a demon who will emerge onto the world's stage out of this seventh empire to create his own empire, an eighth empire. You following me? With a deer in a headlight look. Okay. Now in regards to the ten horns, they represent a future a future alliance of ten leaders. Ten world powers that will band together to form the empire of the Antichrist. They will help him rule. They will answer to him. They will serve his purposes and they will give all their power and authority and military might to him. They will even come together with their forces at the battle of Armageddon to war against the Lamb. When Jesus returns with his people. But these leaders and their forces will be utterly destroyed. So for a short time, that's what the one hour means, for a short time, the Antichrist and those with him will act in unison. They will act in unison under one leader, with one religion, one government, one economy. And if you think about it, just for a little bit, isn't that the picture of Babel to some degree? Wasn't that Babel? And just as the Tower of Babel was brought to an abrupt halt by God. God also has surprising plans for this false religious system as well. Let's continue beginning with verse 15. Verse 15. We are told. And he said to me, this is, this is the Apostle John talking. And he said to me, The waters which you saw, where the harlot sits, are peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues. We've already talked about that. And the ten horns which you saw, and the beast, listen to this, these will hate the harlot and will make her 
desolate and naked and will eat her flesh and she will burn up with fire. For God has put it in their hearts to execute his purpose by having a common purpose and by giving their kingdom to the beast until the words of God will be fulfilled. Okay, so far, the Antichrist and the great harlot who represents the false religious system exist together, right? They exist together. If you remember, the great harlot was sitting on top of the beast, She was supported by the beast. She even appeared to have control of the beast. But the Antichrist is consumed by his own power and glory. And surprise, surprise, he devours the great harlot. He strips this false religion of everything. Nothing is left of her. He does that. Evil turns on itself. And this great harlot is betrayed by the beast she rode in on. As I see it, this would occur at the midpoint of the tribulation period where the Antichrist sets himself up in the rebuilt temple in Jerusalem and demands to be worshipped. As the abomination of desolation, he tells the whole world to worship him. And I believe that's when the false prophet sets up the image and the whole world is commanded to worship the Antichrist. Ultimately, the Antichrist will not tolerate the worship of anything or anyone except for himself. He is to be their God. And he wants no competition. No competition. Even even from a false religion, he wants supported. And just so you know, this is all God's doing. Consistent with what we have seen several times in the Old Testament. Several times. God sometimes uses one wicked group as an instrument to judge another wicked group. And here, God will use the Antichrist 
to come against this false religious system of the tribulation period. Surprising. We have one more verse. Verse 18, which seems to serve as an introduction for the next chapter. And it reads, The woman which you saw is the great city, which reigns over the kings of the earth. As I described to you earlier, this Babylon appears to be both a literal city, just like the great city of Rome in John's day, but it also seems to represent a massive global system comprised of religious and political and economic subsystems. We looked at the false religious system during the tribulation period this morning. And next week we will look at the other, the other pieces of this. So, how does this apply to you and me in the here and now? Earlier I told you that in the Bible, harlotry and adultery were often used as images to represent unfaithfulness to God. Used as pictures which describe an affection for God that is misplaced and misdirected. And if we are not careful, if we are not careful, it can happen to us. Listen to what the Apostle Paul had to say in 2 Timothy chapter 3, beginning with verse 1. I'm going to read this from the, the New International Version because it's, it's a little easier to follow. Paul says to this young pastor, Timothy, but mark this. Mark it down. Mark this. There will be terrible times in the last days. Are we in the last days? Absolutely. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, 
unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Having a form of godliness, but denying its power. Have nothing to do with such people. Like a married man who is flirting with a woman who is not his wife. What Paul just described are people who have turned their affection from God and have turned it elsewhere. And as a result, it has harmfully impacted their character and their conduct to the degree they now live as if there is no God. They live as if God really doesn't matter in their lives. He just doesn't matter anymore. Our greatest danger is to lose our affection. To lose our first love for God by being enticed and seduced and entangled in the things of this world. Attractive things. Even those things we might describe as religious and spiritual. And I say that because religious and spiritual does not necessarily mean biblical. I hope you see the difference. I hope you see the difference. Religious and spiritual, especially today. Especially today. Religious and spiritual does not necessarily mean biblical. And I fear that many do not understand that. Like the old man on the moped. Be careful what you get attached to. For it could harm you in the end. Let us pray. Father, thank you for this time in your word. Another difficult word. I will admit sometimes a confusing word. 
but your word nonetheless. And Father, I pray that you would impart the truths found in your word into our, our minds and into our hearts. That it would just not linger in this room, but Father, as we walk out the door, that we carry your truths with us. Father, we have to be a different people. We have to be different. Father, I pray that we would live our lives in love with you. In love with you. May you be honored and glorified. Thank you for who you are and what you do. Thank you, Lord. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. That's not me, is it? Okay. Is that what it is? Okay. sometimes I'll, I'll be honest with you there have been times in my own life where I had lost my affection towards God everything about him became drudgery found myself just going through the motions just going through the motions my heart wasn't there my heart was not there at all I had the name Christian but my affection was elsewhere and I was living like God just didn't matter. Oh, he does here. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, here. Here, yeah. He mattered to me here. That's why we're here, right? But once I walked out the door, I've got this. I'm in control. Some respects, it sounded like the people of Babel. Oftentimes, I have to remind myself of the simple truths found in the gospel. The gospel just isn't something we, we hear about during our salvation experience, and then we just we move on to other things. We have to continually and constantly be reminded of the basic truths of the gospel. I was hellbound. Hellbound. <clears throat> I was a sinful man. 
and only because of God's mercy and His grace, He forgave me through the finished and completed work of Jesus Christ. And if I would place my trust, my faith in Him, I could be a different person. I have to remind myself of the simple gospel truths that He loves me in spite of me. In spite of me. At my very worst, which is mind-boggling, at my very worst, He still loves me. And proved it. Proved it in the ultimate way by sending His own Son, perfect Son, to take my penalty upon Himself. What more could God have done to prove how much He loved you and me? What else could He do? That was the ultimate expression of God's love for us, a sinful people. It's mind-boggling. We have to remind ourselves of those simple truths over and over again. But secondly, sometimes I think we lose our affection for God when we lose our, our dependence upon God. Just like the people of Babel. I got this. I got this. I've joked in here many times. I'm wondering if it's a joke now. I think many of us approach God like this. Because I have. I can't be the only one. I think this is oftentimes how we approach God. Okay, Lord, we got this partnership thing going on here. Okay? It's just you and me. You and me. As I see it, Lord, I'm going to be the brains of the operation, and you're the brawn. I've got it all figured out. I just need you to carry out what I want done. Am I right? I want you to do what I want you to do. I'm sure he gets a chuckle. He has to. But sometimes that's how we approach God. And we just lose our dependence upon him. We need him. And when you think you don't, you're in trouble. And you turn your heart to other things. Am I right? I'm glad you're here this morning. That God is moving in your heart. You'd like to talk with somebody? I'd love to talk with you. I'm even here on Mondays to talk with you. there's a burden in your heart, I'd like to share it with you. You're not alone. 
I may not understand some things, but you're not alone. Maybe you're looking for a church home. We'd love to have you. We would love to have you. Maybe maybe you're wondering do I really know Jesus Christ as my Savior and Lord? Do I really? Am I just playing church? No, I'm doing just playing church. I'm here because it's Sunday. That's what you do on Sunday. Right? So I'm giving Sunday to the Lord. A couple hours to the Lord. Now the rest of the week is mine. The rest of the week is mine. I'm going to do what I want to do. But yeah, I'll, I'll give him a little bit. Been there. Absolutely been there. Absolutely been there. Maybe you have questions, and I would love to help you kind of sort those out. I'm not trying to create any doubt. I don't want you to doubt your salvation. But maybe you have some questions that just, they just won't go away. They're just lingering things. They're just gnawing at you. I'd love to help you work through that. How will the Lord lead you this morning? However He leads you. I just ask that you respond to Him in obedience. We have spent... Several months in the book of Revelation and talking about the future. And as of recent, talking about the the very end times during the tribulation period when when all is judged. I was thinking this morning, and you know the story. Jesus was was gathered with his disciples, gathered with his disciples. One of their last suppers together. And they served communion, but also Jesus had washed their feet. He had served them. But I was reminded of the of the of the setting of the backdrop, the big backdrop. And that was this. As Jesus was participating in this this last supper with them, as Jesus was washing their feet. Jesus knew that within a matter of hours think about this within a matter of hours he would be arrested in a garden arrested in a garden taken before the Sanhedrin taken before Pilate and crucified. Crucified. I don't know about you, but 
But if I knew that was coming, I just don't know if I would have been thinking about others at that time. Think about that. I will go to a teeth cleaning and it's all about me. Can you imagine? Even with knowing all of this, all this in the the mind of the Lord, knowing this was coming, he knew it was his Father's will. It must happen this way. He knew that. And still, and still, he served others. And I say all that to say this. I don't want to get so so wrapped up in this end times stuff that we've been into for the last few months, right? All this end time stuff. And we forget that we're still here and we are still called to serve one another and love one another. Does that make sense? We can't look past that. We can't look past that. Yes, we are in the end times. No doubt in my mind, we are in the end times. But even so, especially so, we are to love and serve one another. In light of what I just told you, Jesus took some bread and he said, this bread is symbolic. It represents my body that was broken for you. Remember me. Remember. Remember what I did for you. Remember the simple truths of the gospel. And he told his disciples, eat. May we do likewise. And then Jesus took the cup, which represents his blood. In the Bible, the blood doesn't represent death. It's life. It's life. And Jesus said, this blood represents the new covenant. The new covenant whereby whereby we are made right with God, not by keeping the law, we're made right with God by the finished work of Jesus Christ. That's the new covenant. We're made right with God through Jesus and Jesus alone. Jesus alone. And Jesus took the cup and he gave it to his disciples and he said, drink. May we do likewise. Thank you for coming. Let me uh, close us in, in prayer.
Uh, I want to pray for our our time of offering. Just a reminder, our our baskets are back there, and then also for our fellowship uh, afterwards. So so let us pray, Heavenly Father. Again, I thank you so much for for bringing us here this morning. Lord God, I pray that um, your words would just permeate our minds and our hearts. Father, I want to be different. I want to be different. I pray, Lord God, that Jesus would be my absolute everything. My absolute everything. That he would increase in my life and that I would decrease. That's my prayer, Lord God, for all of us. Fathers, we come to a time in our service where we, where we collect uh, gifts and offerings and tithes. Father, I pray that you'd help us to be cheerful, generous givers. Bless, Father, the giver and the gift. And then help us, Father, as a, as a body of Christ, as a church, to use your money wisely. And Father, for our fellowship afterwards, I pray, Lord God, it would be a sweet, fruitful, productive, uh, life-giving fellowship. Bless the food. Bless those who have brought food and prepared food. Again, Father, may you be honored and glorified. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.